Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. What exactly is offense? If you think you have the right not to be offended, um, either change your parameters of what offends you, or, uh, or just realize you're wrong. Comedians tend to toe the line of what offense is, what's inappropriate, what's atrocious, what's forbidden language, and what we've all been dying to say or even dying to hear. In a world of thought policing, language micromanaging, and trying to find the loopholes in the First Amendment, comedians are finding it harder and harder to do what they love to do most, which is make people laugh. Some would argue that comedians have their own depression or sadness or baggage the way any of us do, but comedians use their own comedy as a vessel for healing other people while they heal themselves. Andrew Schultz had to buy back his own special on Netflix recently because Netflix wouldn't play it. It was too offensive for Netflix's new audience and their new mantra. Dave Chappelle, same story, received a ton of blowback after controversial jokes he made and his shows were canceled on the spot. Sarah Silverman was fired from a movie after her skits from a decade prior were exposed as being racist. We're in a highly fragile, highly sensitive world, and it's unfortunate that something like laughter, which was at one time supposed to be the best medicine, is now being considered yet another form of poison. Comedy is supposed to be healing. Laughter is supposed to be healing. Until we became so horribly offended by everything funny that the very people we rely on to heal our emotional and social ills have, well, they've seemingly given up. Just because you're offended, it doesn't mean you're right. Um, I'm often asked if there's anything you shouldn't joke about, and the answer is no. There's, there's no subject out of bounds for comedy. Um, there's nothing you shouldn't joke about, but it depends what the joke is. Comedy comes from a good or a bad place. And I, I think I do deal in taboo subjects very often. I often, you know, expose the elephant in the room. But people often make the mistake of the target of a joke with the subject of a joke. And they're, they're not the same. Um, no bad comes from discussing taboo subjects or, you know, and I think as a comedian, my job isn't just to make people laugh, it's to make them think a bit. It's not only to make people laugh, it's to make people think. That was beautifully stated by Ricky Gervais. It's not only to make people laugh, it's to make people think. So outwardly, we may laugh hysterically. We may find something so wildly funny and amusing that our sides hurt, and we use it ourselves in our own conversations. I can't tell you how many unpatented comebacks I've stolen from comedians and, and SNL and my own father and my husband and, and what have you, because comedy in and of itself is a relief valve. Being provocative and being borderline inappropriate with the intent of being funny 
and infusing humor into really difficult topics to talk about makes them easier to discuss. There is a cultural aspect to collectively laughing with a group. There is nothing like being with a group, whether those people be be known to us or close to us or whether they be strangers. There really is no feeling like a shared sense of joy, laughter, and amusement amongst people that are all on this earth for very similar reasons that we may not even know. When we connect with strangers, when we connect with people we're already connected to, it helps us cope a little bit easier with the difficulty of life and the angst of existence, especially now where we're seemingly more angsty than ever. George Carlin, one of my favorites, talked specifically about not only the purpose of comedy, but he really put more of a political spin on a lot of this, which I like to avoid for the podcast, so we won't get too much into that. But with our hyper-focus on changing certain language, the um, Stanford came out with the, with the initiative for harmful language, which we'll get into a little bit later. George Carlin talks specifically about politically correct language and the context and the intent of our words being more important than the words themselves. After all, the reason why slurs or inappropriate statements or out of context comments receive a negative connotation is because of the context itself. It isn't inherently built into the word that these things are offensive. Of course, if we use inappropriate language or slurs or or anything mean-spirited, which I realize is also kind of a vague, all-encompassing term, if the intent is to hurt someone's feelings, if the intent is to humiliate someone, to attack their character, to disparage someone, of course, morally, that's wrong. I think most people would agree. Most sane people with any form of a pulse or a heart would agree that these things are wrong. But If something actually hurt someone's feelings when it wasn't meant to, or if something was offensive to someone when it was only meant to be lighthearted and they still take to finding horror and some sinister nature in it, I don't know. It feels more like a them problem. There is absolutely nothing wrong with any of those words in and of themselves. They're only words. It's the context that counts. It's the user. It's the intention behind the words that makes them good or bad. The words are completely neutral. The words are innocent. I get tired of people talking about bad words and bad language. Bullshit. It's the context that makes them good or bad. The context that makes them good or bad. Back to the question, what is offense? Offense is such a subjective term because it's dependent entirely on a million different factors pertaining to our upbringing, our personality, the personality of the other person, religion, culture, the people we surround ourselves with, to name a few, our age, our maturity level, our career. There's no specific number of factors that play a role or contribute to our idea of humor and our idea of offense. But generally, in how offense has been studied in sociological and psychological journals, 
the reason why some people appear to become offended or it's hypothesized that they're offended is because it's a blow to their honor in some sort of way. And by honor, we're really referring to someone's values or their worth or their sense of self. So if we feel like we want to save face and we feel that we are protecting our own dignity, something funny that we perceive as an attack on our character will feel harmful. And this brings us to this ongoing conversation or debate about if speech is actually violence because is speech violence? I don't know. Some people use, they, they contest that speech can be harmful. Speech could be abusive. So harm and abuse are directly connected to violence in a lot of ways. Other people claim that violence is physical harm and speech regardless of how mean or cruel or even barbaric it is, doesn't inflict any sort of physical injury to another person. Feeling offended belongs to the so-called self-conscious emotions, as studied by uh, Dr. Lewis in a 2008 article. The self-conscious emotions are shame, guilt, and pride. And again, if we're going back to the blow to someone's character or their honor, shame and humiliation ensue typically when we feel like we've been slighted or we feel like what's most important to us or our principles have been called into question. This is probably one of the reasons why people get so angry and so offended on social media. There is a massive lack of context on social media. Context meaning the conversational topic itself, if you could even call it conversational, is presented in tiny little squares. You could make your captions very long. I've seen many novels of captions, including my own. You could swipe through 10 squares that could potentially hold quite a bit of textual information, but there is still a complete lack of the nonverbal communication, the pausing, and the facial expressions that people share when they're having these in-person conversations. So even if you read through 10 squares, let's say, let's just use my own, you read through 10 squares that I've posted and you formulate your own opinion based on it. You could agree with it. You could disagree with it. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. You decide to roll into my comment section and start telling me or typing out what your view of my post was. That's fair. That's how conversations work in real life. But I feel like I need to remind people that social media is not real life. I'm seeing a lot more of when I invite people into uh, to Zoom sessions or even on the podcast. And I'm going to shout out Brad for, for being such a trooper and being so great about coming on. I'm often met with strange answers like, why would I talk to a stranger outside of social media? To which my response is, you're talking to a stranger on social media. <laughs> How is it different? I understand the difference if it was kind of a more creepy invitation. Hey, do you want to meet me at the Starbucks on 10th Street at 10 o'clock to discuss this? Sure, that could be 
uh, walking into a dangerous situation. But Zoom, Zoom, where you're protected in your own home behind a computer screen. I haven't seen technology advance to the point of being able to physically attack someone through a computer screen. You would think that a stranger on Zoom doesn't pose an immediate threat. To me, it doesn't, because I guess I still consider threat to be something uh, to my survival or my physical safety, because I still have a very hard time with this concept of psychological safety or or emotional safety. Not in the sense that um, we need those things in relationships, right? We've seen toxic and abusive relationships where there is no sense of emotional security or psychological safety. So excluding those, I still don't understand why we live in a time where going on Zoom with someone that you hate could be so emotionally derailing that you would rather continue the back and forth banter in a comment section. And if you listen to the episode um, from last week between myself and Brad, people are very different in person than they are online. That was one of the most, that was one of my favorite conversations I've had. One of the most meaningful and mentally stimulating, insightful types of conversations you can have are with people who have different views than you. It invites you into their line of thinking and it helps you test the validity of your own thoughts. That's the whole purpose of what communication and conversation is, or at least it used to be. And much like Ricky Gervais said, comedy can offer a similar function. When our values have been breached or we feel they've been breached, we take it to a very nasty degree sometimes by lashing out at people in defense of our own honor. When we create these vicious cycles of, I feel attacked, I'm going to lash out at you. You hurt my feelings, so I'm going to hurt yours worse. That's not solving any sort of social problem. It's not proving a point. It only perpetuates this cycle of avoiding true face-to-face communication, avoiding offense altogether, and justifying cruelty as an act of self-defense. Which leads into the, the layered reasons and the layered explanations or hypotheses for why people are more offended than others or why some are more quickly to grow offended or they're hypersensitive to things the way other people are not. An experiment conducted at the University of Michigan tried to reveal some of this complexity behind how people were offended. They ran an experiment where the psychologists that were conducting the study, they asked actors or confederates and nobody knew that they were actors. They asked these actors to bump into participants in the study while they were walking back and forth or they were crowded in a room. And the Confederates called them an asshole. So not only would they bump into them on purpose, but they would kind of turn around and murmur, asshole. What was interesting about this study was they found that men 
that lived in northern areas of the United States were mostly unaffected. They might have been, they might have scoffed, they might have rolled their eyes. But southern men, so people, men who lived in the southernmost part of the United States, took it to heart. So we were talking about age, maturity, upbringing as being contributors to what we find offensive. Your demographic location could also play an interesting part in what you find offensive. What they found with the men who lived in the South was that their cortisol and testosterone levels increased and they reported far more feelings of being upset and they were more willing to retaliate and respond aggressively than people who lived in Northern states. Now, of course, this isn't to say that someone say from Maine could never punch someone in the face for calling them an asshole. This also isn't to say that someone from uh, the southernmost tip of Texas uh, would so much as roll his eyes at being called an asshole or being bumped into. But generally, they found where cultures where reputation and honor and even masculinity were really important values to uphold Men were more likely to feel offended and respond with increased hostility to what they consider to be an insult to those values. While I wish there were more studies about this as it pertains to women, because women and men respond very differently, generally, to not only being offended, but conflict in general, there are certainly some female comedians that are really pushing the gender stereotype envelope in terms of what they say. Lisa Lampanelli is one of my favorite female comedians. Actually, she's my only favorite female comedian, if I'm being completely honest. I typically don't find female comedians funny. Um, And there have been a whole host of other studies as to why people believe that to be true. I don't have any theories other than personally, I just haven't found a lot that make me laugh other than Lisa Lampanelli. Lisa Lampanelli is a self-proclaimed insult comic. She will hurl put downs and insults and the most cruel sounding claims and labels at people in the funniest way possible. And not only will the audience laugh, but the person being insulted will laugh. It's a, it's almost this bizarre form, this, these terms of endearment where making fun of people means that we like them. We hear that quite often sometimes where we engage with people who may be kind of snarky. They may be kind of sarcastic. They may have a a more harsh sense of humor. And I'm describing myself here. I find it funny. I find insults funny. I find making fun of people funny. I find people making fun of me funny. Oh, you want to call me a hook nose Italian? I would have to say that's true. I have an Italian nose and my sense of humor and my sense of self has allowed me to find things like that funny. Making fun of people used to be endearing. It used to be a bonding moment and it used to be something where jerking people's chain and laughing at their expense was the utmost sign of respect for them. This is evident in one of the Comedy Central roasts here, where Lisa Lampanelli 
is making fun of Mike the Situation Sorrentino from Jersey Shore. And let's just say she holds nothing back. Situation from the Jersey Shore. You're all over television and you have a book out. I tried ordering your book on Amazon.com. Amazon said customers who bought this book also bought a rope and a stool. Our level of security in ourselves, and let's, let's kind of dissect ourselves, the meaning of ourselves. A strong self-concept is the confidence in our abilities, the assuredness in knowing that we are convicted in our thoughts. We are assured in knowing that our beliefs are well-rounded and they come from a place of logical fact and maybe some intuition and anecdotal experience. We have a very stable sense of control of ourselves, our reactions, and even our immediate environment. This isn't to say that we feel we could control our environment. We can't. But it's the acceptance and the almost reverence for not being able to control anybody but ourselves. If we have a high degree of personal security... I think that the most confident people cannot and do not allow other people to undermine their sense of self-esteem or give up their control because they're that sure of themselves. I can't imagine reading something that isn't even directed at me, that is a general statement, and thinking to myself, that is so hurtful. I need to tell this person how mean they are. I need to tell this person how hurt my feelings are. That would be different if maybe the claim made was directed at me and my name was used in it. But even then, it would depend entirely on who's saying it, what the context is, and and what the intent of all of it is. A lot of uh, what do they call them these days? HSPs, highly sensitive persons. They are more interested in the impact versus the intent. That's something we'll hear a lot. I've seen about 50 million infographics of it. It's not the intent. It's the impact, which is a way of saying, I don't care what you meant. Even if it was completely innocent, you still hurt my feelings. And that's what matters most. So we are putting our hurt feelings on a pedestal, which is... (laughs) a surefire way of giving our power away to other people. And we sit here wondering why some people are so offended by things. If we have a very low sense of self-esteem or it's artificially high. So we're pretending that we have this massive growth of self-confidence where we really don't. We are likely to see more of these people, the touchy-feely people that just perpetually get offended by everything and they almost seem to look for things to become offended by. There's also social and cultural influences and pressures, if you will. We all know that there are societal rules and norms. Societal rules and norms tell us not 
to drop the F-bomb when we're talking to elders, for example. They kind of guide us into certain language that might be more appropriate given the context of the situation, the people we're talking to. Maybe we shouldn't speak informally to our boss the way that we would our spouse. Maybe we shouldn't be swearing in a library where there are other children because we know that that's inappropriate and we don't want children to hear inappropriate words and phrases and thoughts that we may have. These are things that are societal norms. They're not necessarily laws or written into some sort of contractual obligation. They're just things that we tend to follow. If we take very seriously social norms and we consider them to be not these these legal uh, laws that we need to uphold, but treating them in similar regards, if there is an offense to a social norm and we are someone who maybe lacks some self-esteem and is very closely fused to our own sense of, of justice, we are going to find people offended to be victims. And we see that a lot now. If we are validated by society and culture and we feel that being offended is a, <laughs> a direct attack on our rights, that may be an attempt to restore power in some sense. People that lack control, a sense of control, people with lowered self-esteem, they may get their power from finding wrongdoing in other people and considering simply being offended to be something that is far more sinister and far more serious than a bad joke. It can be really hard to live with ourselves, <laughs> to be painfully aware of the gap between our ideal self and our current abilities can be awful. It's awful to imagine who we want to be and identify all of the barriers and obstacles in ourselves to get there. The reality of how we actually are could be punishment in and of itself. And I'm I'm kind of holding back laughter here because I say this jokingly, but I'm also kind of serious. And maybe this is the at the core of really great humor and comedy is there are kernels of truth to it, but there's more humor. So it's this great balance between truth, reality, and just humor itself. If we're feeling lonely with our flaws and we feel that we are drowning in our shortcomings and our failings in these sordid ways, comedy should be a really wonderful therapeutic means of remedying these feelings. And this isn't to say that we ignore them or push them under the rug or justify them, but the ability to make fun of ourselves and that that self-deprecating humor, it almost acts as emotional armor. We take things less offensively and we're able to laugh at ourselves so that even though it may hurt, it may hurt to look at all of the things that we've 
failed to accomplish, if there are little traces of humor to it, that may be enough to motivate us to persist through hardship versus becoming so emotionally derailed that we stop altogether and we turn to the wrongdoings of other people to regain or restore power that we feel like we have lost. The words that we use and the language that we use is possibly the greatest gift and the cruelest affliction of sorts. We're essentially the only species that has such evolved and sophisticated language. And that does play a role in why we, why words carry such negative or impactful meaning behind them. Cheetahs can't do that. They're arguably elephants and monkeys and chimpanzees have very sophisticated forms of communication, but they're still not communicating through vocal verbal speech the way that humans do. And they're also not <laughs> micromanaging and parsing apart, apart words, trying to develop new euphemisms for things that we find offensive. Words have a history. And when we try to erase certain words and phrases because we think that we're, they're offensive, in my opinion, we're attempting to erase culture and we're attempting to erase some portions of history all for reason. And for what? Because we feel like we're sparing people's feelings. The words we use are absorbed through culture. So to just throw them under the rug or into the archive of harmful language seems absolutely ridiculous, especially when words have so many different uses and meanings. We're about to see one of, <laughs> admittedly, one of my favorite words. You'll hear a little bit about how versatile the F-bomb actually is. In English, fuck falls into many grammatical categories, as a transitive verb, for instance. John fucked Shirley. As an intransitive verb, Shirley fucks. Its meaning is not always sexual. It can be used as an adjective, such as John's doing all the fucking work. As part of an adverb, Shirley talks too fucking much. As an adverb enhancing an adjective, Shirley is fucking beautiful. As a noun, I don't give a fuck. As part of a word, abso-fucking-lutely, or in-fucking-credible. And, as almost every word in a sentence, fuck the fucking fuckers. As you must realize, there aren't too many words with the versatility of fuck, as in these examples describing situations such as fraud, I got fucked at the used car lot, dismay, aw, fuck it, trouble, I guess I'm really fucked now, aggression, don't fuck with me, buddy. Difficulty. I don't understand this fucking question. Inquiry. Who the fuck was that? Dissatisfaction. I don't like what the fuck is going on here. Incompetence. He's a fuck off. Dismissal. Why don't you go outside and play hide and go fuck yourself? 
The reason why language is so sophisticated is because it can be perceived so differently by so many different people. We could all be told the exact same statement in the exact same way, the exact same tone of voice. Let's just use Siri, for example. She's pretty consistent across the board. If Siri were to tell a hundred people, you look pretty today. A hundred different people would probably have a hundred different answers and a hundred different, not answers, a hundred different responses and a hundred different perceptions of what that even means. Words matter. And I don't say that lightly because some people I've heard, um, in, in response to my saying that is, well, Kayla, I thought that you didn't like arguing semantics, or I thought that you hate when people harp on language. I hate when we harp on language changes because of the possible notion that someone may actually get upset. If someone tells me specifically, Kayla, I really don't like when you say X, Y, Z, I will entertain that conversation with that person. And if I feel like it's an appropriate judgment call to make where I will erase that from my language, at least while I'm talking to that person, that is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. But when we make these grand rules or suggestions like the Stanford list of harmful language, It seems very entitled to think that Stanford can decide what's harmful to everybody else. Stanford's list of harmful words is the perfect exemplification of concept creep. It labels most of the words to me are words that nobody in their right mind would actually consider harmful. And secondly, it lumps everything together as if every single word in the list is equally harmful. So I didn't count how many words were in the Stanford list. Most people only saw um, a really short little kind of graph that I think had 10 or less words. But the Stanford list itself is it's pretty massive. It it looks to be at least a hundred different words in here. And I'm going to go through a few of these in a bit. Right before I go through these, here's what I will say. If harm is in the eye of the beholder, who the hell is Stanford to determine how harmed you should feel by certain words and phrases? Let's get into some of these. Stanford, they really just split this up into different categories from ableism to ageism to colonialism to culturally appropriative, gender-based, imprecise language, whatever that means, institutionalized racism, person-first, violent, and then additional considerations. So I'm going to pull some phrases from each of these categories. Let's start off with the ableism category. It's common in research to do a blind study or a blind review, meaning that the the people reviewing your research, you have no idea who they are, Um, a blind study, the the researchers don't know who's a participant and who's a researcher because they're very aware of our own, we're aware of our own biases. 
So these things are all in place to make research as objective and accurate as we possibly can make it. But of course, in typical woke fashion, we have a blind study and blind review um, their ableist terms, and it's suggested that they're harmful with the explanation, it unintentionally perpetuates that disability is somehow abnormal or negative, furthering an ableist culture. Interesting, considering in the word blind review or blind study, nowhere in it does it say anything about abnormal or negative anything. Literally nowhere. All it, the meaning of blind review is an anonymous review. The meaning of a blind study is that it's a masked or anonymous study. That's what it means. There's nothing abnormal or negative about saying the word blind in the context of a blind review or a double blind study or, or whatever. Just completely insane. Oh, wait, I can't say insane. We're supposed to say surprising and wild because insane, once again, is ableist language that trivializes the experiences of people living with mental health conditions. According to who? I worked in a psych ward. I used the word insane, and I never once was called out by anybody struggling with severe mental illness, mind you, that I was being ableist. They also used the word insane themselves, um, to describe themselves <laughs> in some cases, or in the context of what I just said, like, oh my God, the Stanford list, this is insane. I'm not using it in a derogatory way towards people with mental illness. I am saying that it is absolutely ridiculous to think that some hoity-toity ivory tower administrators at Stanford get to decide what language other people can and cannot use. Spaz was one, uh, thanks to Lizzo, who just bent over entirely to these language changes, that is ableist because it, trivia again, trivializes the experience of people living with disabilities. I don't know if you guys remember this, but this was a case on Twitter. I think it was Twitter, where someone with cerebral palsy stated that they experienced spastic, um, oh, I'm going to butcher this, spastic seizures, maybe? And therefore, the word spaz in Lizzo's song um, was ableist, and it was harmful. And she was told to do better. And her version of doing better was to change the lyrics to appease one person that got upset. <laughs> Moving on to culturally appropriative um, subset of harmful words, you can't say brave anymore. Because this term perpetuates the stereotype of noble, courageous, savage, equating the indigenous male as being less than a man. There is not a single person with a modicum of sense that would hear the word brave and think to themselves, you know what, damn it, that is a slight against indigenous males. <laughs> there is, I, I don't even know how these explanations even came, came about. Honestly, I, I really don't. And that's why I would love to be able to actually get in touch with people from Stanford and sit down with them and go through point by point to see who told them that these things were offensive. By all means, if this was an indigenous male that said, Kayla, when you use that word, this is the history behind it. I would say, wow, I had actually no idea. I had no idea that apparently if this is true, by the way. 
that that there was any association or connection or reference to indigenous males being less than men. If that were the case, I might consider using it differently. But again, it is the intent, not the impact of words that matters. Moving on. Oh, here we go. Here's another one. We hear a lot. Oh, I'm so happy to have my tribe or... I have my tribe of people. What are we referring to? We're referring to our collective, our group of friends, our our support system, our social network. According to Stanford, tribe is historically used to equate indigenous people with savages. Once again, I would love to hear where this came from because... When you see interviews with people who live on a reservation, which you also can't say according to this list, by the way, when you speak to indigenous people and Native American tribes, which they refer to themselves as living on a reservation, none of them have ever seemed to find any issue with the word tribe. Unless it's used like you are a tribe of savages, which I've also never heard anybody say. Moving on once again to the gender-based category. Whoo, this is a good one. (laughs) I'm going to preface this really quickly before I say this next one. There are some who have fought tooth and nail for language changes, like trigger warning, which the Stanford list now says is harmful. This brings us back to the euphemism treadmill, which I refer to constantly in everybody I speak to and every platform. I know I sound like a broken record at this point, but I am going to explain the euphemism treadmill one more time. Every time we come up with a substitution for a word that we think might be naughty or bad, the substitution over time will carry and come to attain and absorb the same exact negative connotations that the original word did. Preferred pronouns was something that was in paperwork, in school systems, in job applications, in intake paperwork at the doctor's office. We were told that you must ask people their preferred pronouns. Now, because preferred pronouns has absorbed those very negative connotations, Stanford suggests that the word preferred suggests that non-binary gender identity is a choice and a preference. That's weird, um, considering it's both of those things. (laughs) Being non-binary is a choice, and it's also a preference. The same way um, being gay is a preference. Is being gay a choice? No. Is it a preference? Yes. You have a preference for same-sex relationships. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with saying that you prefer something? That's that's like a common word used in the English language. So I just find that very interesting. Uh, to the window, to the wall, balls to the wall. Can't use that because it attributes personality traits to anatomy the same way ballsy um, attributes personality traits to anatomy. I'm assuming that using phrases like, oh my gosh, Kayla has the balls to say X, Y, Z, attributes personality traits to anatomy. I just 
would love to talk to more men um, to ask them if their private parts are offended by the use of this. Like, do, do does your scrotum inform you in some way that these are things that just really hurt their feelings? I, I honestly would love to know. The same way, let's see. Oh, hey, you guys, we should be using folks, people, and everyone instead because, quote unquote, you guys lumps a group of people together using only masculine language and into a gender binary group, which doesn't include everybody. Oh, God, I just facepalmed. I don't even know if you were able to catch that on my mic, but you guys means everybody. <laughs> if there are a group of people at your workplace with men and women and non-binary people or however you prefer to identify, when you say, hey guys, everyone turns around. It's not only the men that turn around. This is just completely asinine. Okay, I have a couple more because can't help myself. Imprecise language. Um, you are not supposed to say Hispanic. You're supposed to say Latinx or Latinx. However, these people want to pronounce that. You're supposed to use Latinx because although widely used to describe people from Spanish-speaking countries outside of Spain, Hispanic and its roots lie in Spain's colonization of South American countries. Instead of referring to someone as Hispanic because of their name or appearance, ask them how they identify themselves first. I refer to myself as Hispanic. I'm half Cuban. I am Hispanic. I don't refer to uh, myself as Latinx or Latinx or, or whatever the hell it should be called because... I am proud of my Hispanic heritage and my mother is proud that she was born and raised in Cuba and she lives in America as a Hispanic person. I think it's even more insulting to assume that Hispanic people, especially those who came here to live the American dream, I can't imagine how insulted my Hispanic grandmother would be upon being told that, you know what? I know that your entire house got blown down in Cuba from a hurricane and you worked your tail off making your way to America, but you're actually not Hispanic. How inconsiderate is that? I mean, I'm all about, like it says here in the end, ask them how they identify themselves. But why would why wouldn't we do that first instead of assuming that, you know what, they're going to be fine being called Latinx or or whatever, they'll be fine to let go of their Hispanic identity. It's ridiculous. Institutionalized racism. There's a million on here. It's not a million. It feels like a million. When we say that people are grandfathered in to a role, we see this a lot in workplaces. Maybe there's some nepotism. Maybe a family is owned by a mom and dad and their child is grandfathered into a CEO role. Let's just use that as an example. Being grandfathered in is a neon sign of, what is it, institutionalized racism, racist language, for the reason that the term has roots in the grandfather clause, which was adopted by southern states to deny voting rights to black people. 
When we say grandfathered in, once again, nobody is referring to the grandfather clause itself. And this is an example of how our words and language evolve and it absorbs culture along the way. If we actually used the the basis for this list, okay, if we used the, um, the, the principles of the, the initiative for harmful language, nobody would be talking at all because everyone, these people creating these lists would find a way to come up with why everything feels offensive or why everything has roots in XYZ. Everything has roots in something. That's why we're all here. <laughs> I mean, to, to actually shame and, and look back on things a hundred years ago were terrible. Yes, they were. And a hundred years from now, when we're all dead and gone, our children and grandchildren will actually probably look at year 2022 and say, holy hell, what an awful time where Canada actually had formal legislation against using certain language. What an awful time where everyone was forced to get a vaccine and wear a mask, even though there was no proof that those were even effective means of keeping people safe. What a horrible time where we're actually promoting discrimination as a means of remedying past discrimination. I would hope that people would look at 2022 and think, what an absolute shit show. <laughs> what a debauchery of, of human experience. But on that same token, do I find these terminological changes to be insane? Yes. Do I find it annoying when people use certain words and phrases? Of course I do. Would I ever suggest that these people be canceled and their views be erased? Absolutely not. I could be infuriated by the term toxic masculinity. I could be wildly, recklessly, ferociously upset at hearing certain phrases and theories that I hate, but I would never in a million years suggest that we silence those people who are speaking them. You know why? Because we live in a free country. The First Amendment protects any and all forms of speech. Whether we hate it or we love it, whether our ears burn when we hear it, whether my insides feel like they are melting when I hear certain things, I would never in my existence suggest that these people be silenced. Because it would be a complete contradiction to everything that I believe in. People could feel the exact same way when I talk. They probably do feel the same way when they hear uh, my perceptions and my theories of things. And that's why it bothers me so much when people attempt to block or cancel or silence me when I would never want the same for them. Even if I dislike them, even if I find their theories and thoughts to be cruel, completely inaccurate, or even inappropriate, they are allowed to say it. Going back to wanting to be in control of things, people who are typically always offended need to feel like they're in control. Maybe they have a hard time controlling their own emotions, their relationships, their jobs, their anxiety, and that's fine. All of us do. We can't be perfect all of the time, but when we use that as... 
a conduit for treating people poorly and silencing people and attempting to control everybody else but ourselves, this weird passive aggressive form of interaction that takes place on social media but refuses to step outside of the bounds of the comment section, that's that's disempowering yourself even further. The people who harbor this much resentment and grudges and they're sensitive and I have some shreds of empathy that I once again I will reiterate this I cannot imagine reading something and being so hurt to my core that it diminishes my value as a person I've never experienced that before the closest that I've ever experienced that was uh, being in treatment for anorexia. That was painful as hell. That was awful. I would not wish that on my worst enemy. Although I don't really consider some people my worst enemies at all. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, no matter how cruelly or poorly they've treated me. It's awful. Which makes me wonder again, why do we feel like we need to keep changing these things if there has to be some deep knowledge in ourselves that we are being neurotic, we're being neurotic when we're that prone to experiencing these massive shifts in moods and, and dysregulation and an inability to, to grab hold of any sort of sense or self-assuredness that it doesn't even have any survival function. It doesn't even, it's not even a survival mechanism. And this was studied in the cognitive therapy and research journal by a woman who I am completely blanking out on her name. Feel free to Google this for me. If you're listening, she was asked that if if feeling outraged was an adaptive response, was this something that was made absolutely necessary by our ancestors, the way fight or flight was, for example, She said that it wasn't improbable. Historically, people were more likely to be attacked and therefore they were readily taking offense to be a natural defense mechanism to the world's antagonists. So we live closer to each other now and we have to be more mindful of how we're perceived now and maybe how we would be understood by the people that live close to us. But Back in the day, historically, being wildly offended would actually put you more in danger versus simply scoffing it off or laughing it off or moving on from it entirely. The phrase, what is rightfully due, right? What is rightfully due? What is our human right? Is it anybody's right to not be offended? The phrase, what is rightfully due, implies that the person who takes offense to things has an applicable concept of justice. This is written by psychologists David Sigmund and C.R. Snyder, and that holding that other person accountable for having transgressed against that justice concept is the reason for the offense. Once again, nobody is that special to where they are owed the right to not be offended. 
I'm going to say that again. Nobody is that special that they are owed the right to not being offended. Sarah Silverman knows this well. She was canceled quite recently, although I'm seeing her come back in commercials joking about her being canceled. Offensive comedy has a purpose in society. Offensive words have a purpose in society. Any word has a purpose in society. Is your own sense of justice when only applied to other people more important to you than actually realizing you may be the common denominator in your own outrage? Is trying to find fault in everybody else's actions, how is that going for you in terms of your own happiness? Because I could tell you right now, as much as many people will probably not admit to this, it doesn't get you anywhere. It makes you more angry. It makes you more hypersensitive to everything. And it makes you a victim. You, you are turning yourself into this victim who is constantly putting themselves into a series of corners that almost intentionally they can't get out of. Why not rely on your intellect and your abilities to guide you through all of the angst and cruelty and awful things this world has to offer? It blows my mind that we are still in a place where we hear a word or a phrase and (laughs) we're that fragile and feeble that we cannot move beyond it. Is there any word that you just love using that if the the PC brigade just came out and said, no, you can't say it anymore, that's offensive to blah, blah, blah. I like saying pussy. That could offend all the pussies out there. It does offend a lot of pussies. And those pussies are easy to get upset. Because they're pussies. Yeah. In conclusion, comedy and allowing offensive language to live freely wherever it chooses to has far greater benefits than just laughter alone. It isn't only fun. It isn't only entertaining. It fills a central piece of any society. It allows us to cope better with difficulty, with tragedy, with hardship, and most importantly, it allows us to cope better with ourselves. 